We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hi guys, Pete and Rich here. The Boys in the Band podcast is back. But before we get into the main show, we've just got to tell you about a cool deal from our sponsors, Beer 52. Yep, they've come up with a great deal for listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. So if you fancy a free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52, just go to beer52.com forward slash band. And all you have to do is cover the postage cost of $5.95. And as well as that free case, you also get signed up to Beer 52's Beer Club, the largest in the world with over 150,000 active members. And each month, members are sent a case with a different theme, as well as a magazine and a snack. You can, of course, pause or cancel at any time, but it's well worth trying out. So head over to beers52.com forward slash band for that offer. And we hope you enjoy the upcoming pod. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Pete Smith. And on this week's show, we're joined by Rab Allen from Las Vegas. Yep, the Scottish band are back with a new album, Godspeed. And we caught up with guitarist Rab to chat about that, but also the emergence and rise of the band through the noughties and the big success they've had. Yeah, and Rab just came up with some incredible stories as well. We're just blown away by um, some of the huge names that uh, he was, he'd got these stories about. You know, shenanigans on tour with the likes of U2, Kings of Leon, Oasis. They were actually there on that tour when Oasis split up for good. Uh, Lisa Marie Presley and Rick Rubin. They were actually discovered as well by Carl Barrett and Alan McGee. So, you know, the list just goes on and on. Rab's got some amazing stories. Oh, and have you heard the one about a Glaswegian band who go and live with a tribe in the Amazon rainforest? It was a, it was a mad experience, like having to go and hunt for food, like sleeping in hammocks and there was tarantulas running about pumas at night time and like snakes. And it was, I mean, it was the real deal. Our tribe and another tribe were fighting and they were killing each other. So we had a guy that would protect us and it was like, if anybody runs at you, get in the water. Because we were actually on the Amazon River the week and it was like quite, um, it, it, it was a mad adventure. Yeah, unique tale that one. Uh, that's just a teaser of what's coming up and there's there's loads to get into on this one. Uh, they were also the first artists to reach a million plays on Spotify. They were dropped the week of their second album going top 10 and they had to foot a pretty hefty bill to stay on a very big tour. But no more spoilers. Let's crack on, have a listen, and then let us know what you thought of it with a review or by getting in touch with us on social media or emailing us at boysinabandpod at gmail.com. But for now, here's Rab from Las Vegas. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Rab Allen, lead guitarist of Las Vegas. How's it going, Rab? Good. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> good to have you on, mate. Yeah, good. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Um, well, first question in the sound check, our quick fire three questions at the top of each podcast. Where are you? Uh, I'm in my bedroom in Glasgow. Very nice. It looks too. Um, and uh, second, <laughs> question, second question in the sound check is uh, what are you listening to at the moment? Who are you into? Uh, do you know what I've been listening to constantly for like the past three months? My own band, because we've been finishing the mixes of the new record. So thankfully that's gone. Uh, there's a Scottish art- artist called Lucia in the Best Boys. And I think she's fantastic. Um, a lot of new music, actually, a lot of new Scottish music. 
Cool. cool. And yeah, it leads into a, the third question I was going to ask you. Um, tell us about rehearsing. How's it going? Because I know you've got a stream gig coming up on the 9th of April. Is that right? St. Luke's? Yeah, yeah, yeah tell, us, right. tell us about that. Um, well, uh, do you know what? It's been, it's been great to see the, the boys again. That, mm. That's been the best thing. Um, we didn't sound too good at the start, but we're kind of getting our <laughs> get, get, get act together. We'll try to learn new songs. And I forgot how hard it is. Like, James finds it hard to play the guitar and sing. So that's always difficult because he wants to just sing, I think, a lot of the time. So I'm having to kind of try and do two guitar parts more and it's a pain in the ass. But <laughs> it's going well. I'm, you know, I'm actually going there tonight when I'm finished with this. So going cool. there quite a lot. Because so. I saw a post on your Instagram the other day. It was about a year, wasn't it, since your last gig at Firewater? Is that right? That must feel like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it is. And I, do you know, I forgot about that gig. Me and James did an acoustic tour. Um, mm. at the end of last year and I thought that was the last thing we did and then it was this the charity gig for mental health yeah yeah good, good. and uh, yeah as I say we've got a stream gig coming up uh, on the 9th of April and a tour next year which we'll uh, touch on later but let's uh, let's rewind back to the start then, then Rab um, I suppose we're, the famous part of the, the starting story is uh, King Tut's Wawa Hut in February 2006. Mm-hmm. Not, the, not the first band to be discovered there. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Oasis was, was discovered there uh, a fair few years, about 13 years before you guys. But it was the same, the same guy, Alan McGee, spotted you at that, at that very venue 13 years later, and he was uh, with Carburat as well. So yeah. sounds like a great story. Take, take us back <laughs> to what it, was, what it was like being there. Do you know what? It was, it's a strange night because Denise had emailed Alan, I think it was maybe the day before, she saw he was going to be in Glasgow and it was MySpace. So she MySpaced him and said, look, I manage this band and I think they're going to be really, really big and I think you would like them. And he said, why don't you come along to my hotel for a cup of coffee? So she went and met him, talked to him into coming to the gig. He was up with Dirty Pretty Things who were finishing their record um, in Glasgow. So Carol came along and... Um, James used to play football. He was a professional football player. And before that gig, he got fired. Like, at the back door, just as we were walking on the stage to play the gig, it was like... <laughs> and um, it was just, you know, the, one of those weird timing things where things just clicked together. We did the gig. We were pretty good. Um, and then after it, Alan was just, like, blown away. And Carol was like, do you want to do some gigs with the band? And um, that's how our friendship with Carol's kind of started amongst our really good friends and now obviously Alan McGee manages us as well so it's kind of a full circle. Yeah incredible because I was going to say obviously James playing football to a good level and I was going to ask what point did he decide to sort of throw himself more into the band than than to that side of things but it sounds like it was forced upon him a little bit. You know well that was the thing he the, I think the managers at the football teams thought he was taking drugs because he played guitar. It was like, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think many football players like music and play music. So he was like not turning up for games and stuff at the weekend, saying he was sick and then his photo would be in the newspaper. So it was kind of getting to the point he couldn't really get away with it anymore. So, um, and it's a shame he was really good, to be honest. Like he should, have, he should have done much more than he did, but I can't complain. Like I, I got him in the band, so it's, it's worked out well for me. Yeah, it all worked out absolutely. absolutely. So, what, what what about that night then? Uh, then, Rab, was it you were aware that, that Alan McGee was in attendance? Were, were you sort of feeling the pressure? How far into the Las Vegas journey were you at that point? Were you pretty confident in your craft? That was um, not really. I mean, that was still pretty early on. Um, but I guess Las Vegas started in two thousand and four, and I guess it was once Alan seen us at that point that we kind of started taking it a bit more seriously. I think we had maybe half of the first album by that point we'd like go score go flowers and football tops 
and a couple other ones. Maybe daddy, maybe daddy's gone as well. Um, but after that gig, I think that kind of praise was kind of what we needed, and we kind of gave up our jobs and bought a transit van, put a mattress in the back. This isn't a lie, by the way. Put a mattress in the back and just drove up and down the UK playing gigs to like two people. Um, and then luckily, uh, halfway through 2007, Tim Jones uh, from the NME. Uh, seen us at one of Alan's club nights he asked if he could put out a vinyl for us and we did Daddy's Gone and then that's when things just went a bit crazy after that yeah big time yeah so what about the the sort of the sort of sound that Las Vegas were were aiming for when you started out where were you sort of taking your references from who were you inspired by and what were you uh, yeah what were you trying to trying to produce as a band I mean me James and Paul loved Oasis I think that was kind of the key thing for, for being in a band that we just you know, especially the early days, totally idolised them. So we were kind of going for something big. Um, when Caroline joined the band, she couldn't play the drums. So we were kind of limited. And I think the sound of the band came from our limitations as musicians. So like the reverb on the guitars was to fill in the gaps from the drums. As I said with James with the guitar, James can't play rhythm guitar. Like I'm not joking when I say this. So James was a kind of dreamy kind of sound of the band. Yeah. So thing, it was more about ability than it was actually making a, like an effort to make the band sound a, a certain way. I mean, James loved Velvet Underground and those kind of things, so I can see where the, where the stand-up drummer came from. Um, but it was definitely like Oasis onto things like Velvet Underground and then back to kind of like the girl groups, the Phil Spector girl groups, which I guess is a lot of the drum beats in the first record are totally ripped off a lot of that stuff, so... Yeah, and it's interesting the way you've managed to work that into, as you say, quite a distinctive sound that Las Vegas had got with the reverb and the, you know, if you think of songs like "It's My Own Cheating Heart" that makes me cry, it's quite so powerful, isn't it? With that, that, that the way it just builds with those, that, I guess, layers of sound almost, isn't it? That you you guys put that's together. Exactly what it is. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So you signed up by Columbia Records and yep. uh, recorded a debut album out in Brooklyn, New York. So. How does that happen? How do you end up going from back of a van with the mattress on the back to playing your, well, recording your debut album in New York? Well, let's go back to the mattress in the back of the van. <laughs> okay. That's a good story. So I don't know how it happened, right? But our music found its way to America. And it was Lisa Marie Presley. Got it somehow. And then just, I don't know how it spread about. So one thing we were coming back from rehearsals in the back of this transit van and James got a phone call. And he took it in the back of the van, the back of the van, and he hung up. And I was like, "What is it?" And he was like, "Oh, this guy's kidding on his Rick Rubin." And then the phone went again. He answered it, and he's like, "Look," and it was Rick Rubin on the phone. So Rick Rubin was phoning fairly like, "Look, I failed your demos, and I, I think you should work with this guy called Rich Costey." Um, and we didn't know anything about producers and all that kind of stuff. So the whole reason we went to New York was because Rich is based there. That's where Rich kind of had a had a studio and worked and stuff. So. Um, yeah, that, that, that was kind of mad. I mean, I think we could have recorded it anywhere. I think the label were, were quite desperate. We signed in the February, and two weeks later, we were actually in New York recording it. I mean, it was quite a quick, a quick turnaround. Um, but that, that, that was a great experience working with Rich. Like, the, the stuff he did sonically in the first record was just incredible. The kind of layers and stuff you're talking about, I mean, that was, yeah. that was Rich's thing. Like, he... I think in, more in mixing maybe than recording, but he's like a, a real talent. So what was the rush there? You said the record company were uh, keen to get it out or get, get working on it quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that was really because we had built up that much of a buzz at that point that they didn't want like a big wait before the album. So we'd, we'd sold out our 30 day UK tour without being signed. We had been in all the enemy and the year list, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So they were like, let's just kind of capitalize on it. So then we finished the album in the May and it came out in the September time. So they wanted like a single really quick. And, yeah. Cool. Could you mention Tim Jones there? Obviously, anybody seems to be big fans and big supporters of you all the way through. I know they named Daddy's Gone as like number two single of the year in 2008 once that came out. There's a great quote that Rich dug out as well. He said, if, Liberty, if the Libertines defined the start of the decade, Arctic Monkeys, the middle, Las Vegas almost certainly are going to define its end and beyond. Yeah, that must be a great uh, thing to hear when you put out your debut record and get that sort of feedback from such an important uh, media outlet like the NME was at the time. Of course, I mean... I think the enemy were really good to us. And I think the thing that was that was funny was that Tim didn't want the enemy knowing that he had put the record out for us because he wanted people to kind of make up their own minds. Right, yeah. So when we'd recorded it and he, he took it in and let a few people hear it, he didn't say that it was him that had... Because basically what happened was Tim had put his money into it that him and his wife were supposed to be buying a house with. Oh, wow. I don't know if he told his wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> But he made his money back on it anyway, which was as long as he made his money back. But I know that that's what he did. So um, he was just like a, a, a fan from like the first time we saw him. Um, but yeah, and everybody was just really into the band. It was just such a special time. Um, yeah, with like enemy, everybody was just really into us. It was, it was nice. Yeah. And then obviously you, you, you released that debut album September 2008, you said, and... Uh, Went to number two in the charts, only beaten by Metallica. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it must have been, again, what was it like sort of the, around that release date? Was there excitement, trepidation? How did you feel about, you know, being beaten to the number one spot by Metallica? <laughs> you, know, you know what I remember? I just remember the record label being really, like, flappy, like, you know, really panicking and stuff. The thing is, the record label could never control us. We were just a bit wild. So... They, were, they kept asking us to do things, and if we didn't want to do it, we wouldn't do it and stuff. And there was a there was an argument over which week the album was going to get released, whether it would be the week it came out with Metallica or the week before. And the week before the the Velvet were releasing a new record, and there was this woman at the record company that said they'll never sell more records than the Velvet. So obviously we would have sold something like three or four times more than them if they'd released it the week before. Oh you know, no! <laughs> you know about like things like chart positions and all that stuff. Yeah, I think it used to bother me. But now I'm just like, it doesn't really matter anymore, I don't think, you know. And I guess it leaves you with something to go if you're number two. If you, if you get a number one, that's it. Where, where, where can you go? Exactly, build towards it, yeah. Um, <laughs> and obviously, you know, we talk about the reception of the album and it led to, you know, world tours and support slots for, you know, Oasis, who we've already mentioned on the pod, U2, Muse, Kings of Leon. These must be sort of fantastic memories where you go into another level, really, aren't you? Playing to huge crowds, I guess, at these shows and mixing with these absolute superstar bands. It was. I mean, these things were great for like totally different reasons. Like we get kicked off the Kings of Leon tour. Nobody knows that. We nearly get kicked off the U2 tour, but to pay them £25,000 to stay on it. <laughs> it's just like, Can I mean, you divulge any more details than that? Or? <laughs> um. So the Kings of Leon tour, we were just more wild than they were. And we were invited to leave. You normally get invited to join a tour, but we were invited to leave <laughs> uh, after a few gigs. Um, the U2 tour, um, we were doing football stadiums. And in each of the rooms, there was like uh, big kind of vinyls of famous football players. 
So when our bass plug gets a drink in him and he's got a sharpie, he likes to draw on things. So he decided to draw like really outrageous things on all of these football players. Um, then the next day when whoever from the stadium recognised it happened, phoned up our manager and was like, look, we think Glass Vegas did this. And our manager was like, are you 100% sure? And they said, no, we're 99% sure. And they said, well, there's a 1% chance then. <laughs> and what had happened was, um, who was it? Somebody had played the night before us. And I think our manager tried to blame them, knowing that it was us. But it was obvious it was us, do you know what I mean? It was just stupid boys. So we had to pay like 12 and a half grand to get the photographs fixed and we had to donate 12 and a half grand to a charity. I don't think you two ever found it themselves, but yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the best. And it, we, we just used to do daft stuff like that all the time. Like We were just trying to have a good time, do you know what I mean? And the, the Oasis thing was amazing because it was just so nice being with, being with those two and spending some time with them. Though. That, that was really good. Yeah, obviously... You know, we talked about the connection with Alan McGee and we talked about the you know, respect you had for that band before you even started Glass Vegas. So, yeah, what, what was it like mixing with Liam Noel and the band and, um, yeah, obviously supporting them on tour? We were in tour with them when they broke up. Oh, um, wow. And they, they genuinely did dislike each other. Like, it wasn't even, like, a brother's thing. I can see why that would happen when you've been through what they've been through together. But it was like one of them would stand at one side of the stage and watch us, one of them would stand at the other. They would never be together. Um, and my mum came out, it was, it was my birthday, and my mum came out for some of the gigs and the two of them sat, it was the only time they were together and they were so respectful and so lovely and sat with my mum and, and James's mum, it was really nice. Um, and even when they were with us, it was every day Liam would come in the dressing room and say, have you got everything you need? How was last night? Was the sound okay? Can I do anything for you? So he's a, he's, he's a big pussycat. Even though <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned uh, them being sort of famous brothers that didn't get on. What about their... Yourself and James as cousins in the band. Did, did you you guys always see eye to eye? Did you ever have similar Liam and Noel style bust ups? <laughs> see, I'm I'm a, I'm a wee bit more sneaky than that. I know that it's James that makes all the money, so I know that I need to always keep him with him. <laughs> and James can get rid of me because I don't sing. So, um, no, do you know what? We've never fell out as a band ever, 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 ever had a fall out. I think because we're all friends, we were friends before the band. So I think because of that, then there's, there's it's a bit of a deeper understanding there. Yeah. Great. And of course, in between all of this, um, you released a snowflake, a snowflake fell, if I can say it correctly, <laughs> uh, your Christmas EP. Yeah. Yeah, and it was recorded in a, this is even more of a tongue twister for me, Transylvanian Castle. Yeah. <laughs> as you do, don't you? Because this is what you do when you just suddenly uh, take off as a band, just go and record a Christmas EP out in Romania somewhere. Well, do you know what, James had written some Christmas songs because he, he loved Phil Spector's Christmas album. So he'd written some Christmas songs. Yeah. So his stipulation in the contract was, you need to let me go to Transylvania and record a Christmas album. So obviously they, everybody was desperate to sign it. So they all said yes. So when it came to me and James said, so when are we going to do this? They were like, oh, we thought you were only joking. And James was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so they flew us out to, uh, it was called Brasov, which was like the kind of main city. It was just outside of Transylvania. And we'd set up a little studio recorded loads of parts, uh, went to New York, recorded loads of parts, and then came back to Glasgow and mixed it. Yeah, it was great. There was like an out-of-tune piano and stuff. It was just, yeah, it was just, it was thrown together, but I'm really happy. I thought it sounded great, so. Yeah. And then again, the record company fell out with me because I felt like we were conning people by making them buy the first album again. So I put up a link to like a download of it on our Facebook page and all our social media stuff and gave it away for free. Oh. Record company were not happy. No, I can imagine. Yeah, but it was worth us getting. 
they, they released it as like a, a double sort of release alongside the the the, the debut album as well, didn't they? As far yeah, as and I, I thought that was kind of conning people a wee bit, like making them buy it again and stuff. And I was like, I felt a bit, yeah. yeah so. But um, but back to that debut as well, Rob. Right? Was going to mention the got, got nominated for the Mercury Prize, uh, which is a, another fabulous bit of recognition. Um, but didn't make it to the award ceremony, from what I read. Is that right? That James went missing just before the ceremony, and uh, you didn't actually make it to the prize. Is that right? Well, James said that he didn't want to go, and nobody believed him. So he went to New York and just didn't tell anyone. <laughs> so and me and Caroline and Paul went to the awards and had a great time and drank all the free booze and stuff. And oh, good. There was people all like, exactly. <laughs> what, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> and everyone was like, where's James? And we were like, we don't know. And then the next thing, the headlines was like, James missing, like rock star missing. And it was like, no, we just don't know where he is. Like, he said he wasn't going. It wasn't like any big. Uh, and then we were supporting Kings of Leon after that. So we flew to America. And he met as he travelled up from New York and uh, management were raging and really, really, like, really pissed off him. And we, we were just like, well done, well done. <laughs> Very rock and roll. And, you know, you obviously said, you know, you guys were having a great time and going a bit wild and things. But Caroline left in 2010, uh, replaced by Jonah. Um, so was there any sort of signs that it, this tour in the first album was maybe taking its toll a little bit on, the, on you guys? I think with Caroline personally, there was a toll from the very first rehearsal she ever had with the band. Like she hated playing the drums. So we taught her how to do what she did, but she hated it. And she used to be sick um, before every gig. Every gig she'd have a bucket and she'd throw up. And it wasn't fair to ask her to do that. And as the gigs get bigger, her anxiety and her pressure was just like... So when it came to the second record, I think she knew that she just couldn't do it anymore. Like it wasn't for her and it was affecting her health. So she, she chose to leave. Um, in terms of the rest is like I can only speak for myself, but I mean I, I had there was like really difficult times during the first record, like touring them and stuff, just because it was a new experience. I didn't know what I was doing. I was away from home. Somebody gives you loads of money, and it's just like crazy, you know. And, and I, I guess people don't think about how it is for bands being out and, and having to kind of navigate around something like that where it's just free booze every night and loads of parties and all these kind of things and um i mean i i i just went a bit numb for a while which is really the only way i can describe it um but luckily we're all still here and we're all still friends and yeah yeah well absolutely and, and album number two wasn't far off either so we, we'll talk about that in part two um nice. after this short break nice one right Hi, I'm Rob from Las Vegas, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages, and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Okay, welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we're with Rab from Las Vegas. Um, let's talk about the second album then, Rab. Um, 2010, out in Santa Monica, this one was recorded. So we've done New York, tick that off the box. California next up. <laughs> living the dream, aren't we? Um, you, like, you wouldn't even understand how much it was living the dream if I told you, so I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> the best of my life. So. Yeah, so different yeah. vibe out on the West Coast to New York. Um, how was it different uh, to recording the second album to the first one? In all honesty, it was just a different... It was just like a different pace. Things were quite slow. So we had rented a beach house on the, on the Pacific Coast Highway. So it was like this like big three-storey, $5 million house on the beach. And it was just like, 
it was just amazing. We had a studio in the house and we would just record there every day. It was just like, it was just nice. Um, then we did that, we came back to London and then we worked with Flood for a while, do you know Flood, the producer? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And then we kind of changed up a few of the songs, did a few, few different bits and then and that was that, yeah. But it's completely different experience to the first record. And um, obviously Jonah involved as well, Swedish drummer. You yes. guys seem to have got quite a bit of traction out in Sweden. Is that any story behind that? Is it just uh, one of those strange things that you just hit it off out in there? In that Do you know what? I, it was actually Scandinavia as a whole. So mm. we got asked to go and do loads of like press, like a press tour in the first record. And we were like, why have we got to do this? And it was like crazy people turning up. Like we had to actually do a gig when we were there, me and James, because people were outside our hotel and that looking for us. It was like bizarre. And that's still our biggest market. Like if we're playing in Stockholm, we'll play to like thousands of people. It's, it's just crazy. Um, I think it probably had something to do with Spotify as well, because Spotify just started and we were the first artist in Spotify to get a million plays. So I think it was just a timing thing with Spotify and I was then the record and all of those kind of things. Um, yeah. So was Jonah into Las Vegas before she joined? Was she a big fan? She'd never heard the band. So, <laughs> so, so what, what actually happened was she, she joined once the album was finished. So we flew her from Stockholm over to London to kind of meet her, but we didn't even audition her. We just thought, she looks great. That's it. Get her in the band. Because we'd seen her play the drums. She'd sent some videos and we could tell she was kind of cool and she had a good vibe about her. So she left. She thought we didn't want her because we didn't ask her to hit any drums. But like, I don't really think I'm good enough to audition someday, to be honest. I know the rest <laughs> of the band probably feel the same. So we knew she could play the drums after Caroline. Anything was going to be an improvement. Sorry, Caroline. Um, <laughs> well, it was never really going to be a bad thing, but I don't think we realised how good she actually was until until she joined. And it's like, yeah, she's like a, a box of fireworks. Cool. So Euphoric Heartbreak came out in April 2011, uh, again, accompanied by a huge tour when it came out. Um, but you guys split or went your separate ways from the record company in August 2011. So that seems just a bit strange to us looking from the outside. Obviously, you guys playing big shows, doing big tours. Um, what, what was going on there before BMG picked you up for the third album? So I don't really know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but it's probably okay because enough time's passed. So they actually dropped us the week the album came out. Wow. So the album went top 10. But I think at that point, they were basically thinking, we're not going to make any money off of this because... I just, I just think they, they, they knew for the amount of money they'd put into it, the amount of money they would have to keep putting into it. So the way they made it out was that, you know, they were still working with us, but that, that was the, the actual week that the album came out that happened, which was fine. I mean, I think when we signed our initial deal with Sony, they had their backs up against the what we signed us because Universal wanted us and Warner wanted us and all these different labels. So they had to basically give us what we wanted and the, 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 the contract was so one-sided that we would have to have been bigger than the Beatles probably for them to make any money. And it was unfair, it was unfair, but we didn't have the experience to know that that's how that worked at the time. So when it came to the second record, I think it needed to be something really special. And remember when it came out, Adele was at number one and there was so many artists that were, it was just a different scene when that album came out. It was only three years, but it was a much more pop-orientated kind of scene by then. And I think they just realised, and I, I don't blame them, like I'm still friends with the guy that signed us and all the people for the record label, they're, they're nice people, but it's just business in the end, so. 
Yeah, and I suppose initial... as well with um, yeah, because you, me- you mentioned about Spotify and coming around at that time, whether the fact that record sales in general probably were were significantly lower by, by the time yeah. the second album came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing, and the the people that like our band, it's not really kids who use Spotify. It's more people who like to kind of hold a physical thing. So we were never going to be that band that had all the big Spotify plays and, and streams and downloads and that. So Despite it's just about being realistic. Yeah. yeah, do you know what? It's about being realistic about what you are. And, and we know what we are. We know what we can do with an album in terms of sales and touring and stuff. And like, yeah, I think their expectation was a lot higher than what we thought it could do. So, yeah, sure. BMG picked you up uh, shortly after and you released the third album later when TV turns to static in yep. September 2013. So, you know, starting out way back in, say, 2004, 2006 earlier with uh, the yep. debut in 2008, mm-hmm. how had the band developed uh, by 2013? Things were quite mad still within the band. Like, I think we hadn't had a break since maybe like... We just hadn't had a break really since before the band had started. So I think with that, I think we just felt we had to keep going and put something out. And I think we should probably have took a break after that. Um, but I still think the album's good. I still like it. We still play it and people, people seem to like it. So it's fine. Um, but I just think as, as a band, we should have took a break. So then after we released that album, we went straight in to start the fourth in 2014. And then that's when we took a break, which I think was the right idea to do. Um, which I'm guessing you're going to ask me about. <laughs> we are, we are. The, the next next thing I was going to ask you about, though, is trip to the Amazon jungle, because this is not the normal thing that a Scottish band would have on their CV. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I, like, I, I loved it, right? We thought it was a joke when our manager brought it to us. He was like, do you want to go and make some music with a tribe in the jungle? It's for a TV show. And he used to wind us up and be like, joking about things. So we're like, yeah, of course. That's... So the next thing we know, we'll get tickets to fly to Ecuador. <laughs> what's going on so I'm, I'm terrified of flying like petrified like I need to be so drunk when I got on a plane it's just nothing funny so when we, when we got to Ecuador nobody had told me because they knew I wouldn't go when we got to Ecuador to get into the job I thought there was a runway where we were going but to get in like a little single engine plane where the windows could go down because you were flying that low and you could squeeze four people in so I had to like, land with a piece of grass on a runway and it was just <laughs> It was terrifying, um, yeah. but the actual experience was great. And yeah, have you saw it? Have you saw the program? Because I know it's quite hard to get a hold of. Not seen the program. We just saw. Is your only Insta, wasn't it? Again, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, do you know what? it was? It was a it was a mad experience. Like having to go and hunt for food, like sleeping in hammocks, and there was tarantulas running about, pumas at night time, and like snakes. And it was. I mean, it was the real deal. It wasn't like a. You know, we had the guy in who, who goes out with Bear Grylls and he was there because our tribe and another tribe were fighting and they were killing each other. So we had a guy that would protect us and it was like, if anybody runs at you, get in the water because we were actually on the Amazon River the week and it was like quite, um, it, it, it was a mad adventure. Um, yeah. And it was funny, we were actually speaking about these people in the tribe a month ago. We had a phone call with the lawyer because uh, there's, there's always people going in and trying to take the land off them for the oil. So they've got a lawyer in New York and they, they try and kind of raise awareness and stuff. So we were, we were speaking to them last month. Cool. Incredible, Jane. Yeah. So mad, um, time. mad times. Mad, mad times, time. indeed, yeah. 
So, Rob, tell, tell us about this, uh, this little, little break in between then, because you, you mentioned you started, at, started working on album number four in yeah. 2014. Here we are in 2021. It's still not, still not quite arrived. Um, but, you know, there were times in sort of 2014, 2015 on your social media where it, it sounded like it might actually be a lot sooner than it's turned out. So what, what's gone on in between with, with, uh, with the band and, and so uh, how I, have you got I, to, I, I, to hear? I, I, are you referring to when James said the album's going to be released next week? And like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So the album hadn't actually been fully written at that point. <laughs> so James gets really excited and thinks, I'm going to get this finished in time. And I'm maybe more the realist that's like, no, this is, this is like a bit of a way off. What had happened was we started recording it. We had the bones of the album recorded. We had quite a, quite a, a lot of it done. And then James moved to Stockholm. And then that kind of separation, I think, was good for everybody just to get a bit of downtime, like, like what I was saying. Um, I know that he, because things in Glasgow were just wild. Like, if we would go out for a pint, there would always be somebody wanting to start a fight. There would always be somebody like, who do you think you are? Do you know what I mean? which is just natural, I think, when somebody gets any level of success. It's, it's really silly. But So I think it was good for him to get away. He went to Stockholm. Um, he was there for a while. And then, really long story short, I went back to university. I interviewed Alan McGee. Alan said, I want to manage a band. And then he said, well, have you got any music? And I said, well, we've started something. And they said, well, why don't you finish it? And then that's kind of how it all kicked off again. So Alan's so, back steering the ship again. Uh, Alan's back. Alan's like Alan's like the sh- the shaman that comes in, drops a few shiny gold nuggets of wisdom, and then he departs. And then he comes in a couple of months later and drops a few more nuggets. Like he's just such a such a knowledgeable, uh, lovely guy. Um, I'm so glad that he's he's involved with the band. Yeah. Excellent. So we've got. We have got the fourth album, haven't we? Godspeed, coming out in April this year. So not long at all now. We're just speaking at the start of March. So uh, how are you feeling about it? Finally uh, hitting the shelves, I was going to say, but I don't know if it does hit shelves anymore or lands on Spotify or something like that. Yeah, well, we're doing like vinyls and CDs and stuff, mm. but I think it's more, I mean, it's mostly digital now, isn't it? Like, yeah. which, which is a shame, but James is still really into artwork. So he's, he's done like amazing artwork for it. It was a photograph that he got took in America. We were out walking... Um, in Brooklyn, and there was a there was a, a, a blind kid, and he was he, I can't remember if he was healing someone, and it was just like a it was like a mad thing, and all these people were like praying in the street, and so James James got his friend to take a photograph, and then he thought that would that would be a good album cover for this album, so that's yeah. kind of yeah that work and all that's really good, and the videos have been good that he's done so far and stuff like that. So I'm excited to get it out. Like there's some really good songs in it. <clears throat> really good songs. I think it's it's probably the the happiest I've ever been at the end of an album because I think it's the best that it could be. I think after the first one, I thought it is what it is, and we had to finish. The second one was the same. The third one was the same. But with this, because we've had so much time, it is genuinely the best it could be. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm I know that James is really proud and so on. Yeah, we've heard three singles so far. I mean, Keep me a space is one that really jumped out for me, but. Um, just tell the listeners then what they can expect if they've not already heard it by the time this podcast uh, comes out. Really loud, really noisy, loads of reverb, really shouty. 
What a review. <laughs> really good as well. Really yeah, good. Of course, of course. <laughs> but the good thing, the funny thing was keeping that space wasn't going to be on the record. So the record was going to have eight songs and he had written keeping that space and I said, it's great. And James is like, no, no, I don't think it's right. Then Alan McGee heard it and he was like, that's your first single. Yeah. So that's... That's kind of Alan's input, you know. James, yeah. James always wants to keep those things off. So, nice. good shout from Alan there, definitely. And um, and hopefully going to be able to tour it. Obviously, restrictions sort of easing in the UK uh, in the next month or so. But you were originally scheduled to be touring around about now, weren't you? But that's been pushed back to February 2022. Is that right? Originally, it was supposed to come out last year, the album and the tour, and then we were supposed to do the tour just now, and now it's been moved to 2022. Yeah, we're doing the UK in February and Europe in March. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, double fingers crossed. Yeah, I know. I can't wait. Like, I've, I've just missed hanging out with the guys more than anything, I think. Like, the music thing's always good, but actually just hanging out with your mates. And the past few weeks we've been in rehearsals and it's just been so much fun, like, playing again. We've got a new drummer again, so that's that's been good fun as well. So, yeah. And any hopes to get on any sort of festival bills before before next February? Well, I know that there was a couple we were supposed to be doing Victoria's Festival in Portsmouth. I don't know if that's been moved or cancelled or what's happening with that. And there's a few other ones that we're doing, uh, Shine On, um, and a few that's now been moved to next year. I think Alan McGee's Festival, the Creation Festival, has been moved, and there's a few others that we've been asked to, to play that just haven't been announced yet. So, yeah, yeah slowly it, um, getting back into it. Yeah. Exactly. It was one of the, uh, one of the tours that um, jumped out on me when it was reading up on you guys was the uh, the 10th anniversary tour in in 2018 so you toured the the debut album on the 10th anniversary it must have been nice to to roll back the years at that point especially as you as we discussed you're in a little bit of a um a space a time off space at, at that yeah. time so um it must have been really nice to relive those memories it was and do you know what was really nice it was nice to kind of play the songs i, I think we're a much better band now than, than we were then so it's nice to actually play the songs and get the power live and all of those kind of things and seeing James singing the songs and delivering them the way he did every night I think it was really difficult in the first record but he just seemed to do it with a lot more ease that time which was really nice so we would do the first album in full and then we would just do like a bunch of like greatest hits <laughs> greatest hits at the end and it was just it was really fun every night and it was like all the old fans that I hadn't seen in years and yeah it was, it was so nice everybody still came out to see us yeah, because obviously it's something that we'd say running this podcast about the sort of the noughties indie rock scene, but there is a real affinity to it, isn't there, of people who went through that and, you know, late teens, early 20s or even a bit older during that time, real attachment to that era. So what do you think about that that period as well? Sort of what bands were you into at that time? Obviously, we spoke about the superstars like Oasis and U2 who were um, perhaps a little bit prior to that or moving sort of alongside that. But what about the rest of the scene at that time? I mean, I, I, like I was just, I, I'm more into like big songs. So like acts like Kings of Leon, uh, I love the White Stripes. Um, which I think of else I would have liked. Do, do you know what I saw recently? And you probably saw this. Did you see that record about the landfill indie? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? We were in that and there was so many bands in that. And I think people were like thinking that was a bad thing. I love being in those things because it's like, it is what it is. As you said, it was of its time and it's a thing. doesn't mean it's any less important now, but I think people, some people were kind of meaning it in a negative way. And I was like, all those bands were great. You know? That's what we thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
Um, obviously, Arctic Monkeys as well. I loved Arctic Monkeys. I saw them. I saw, it was one of their first gigs in Glasgow. We were speaking just back at the, the start of the podcast, and um, I saw, so I'd heard of that. I'd heard of the Arctic Monkeys, and I'd managed to get tickets. Or manager get tickets for a, a venue called Barfly, which was like a hundred, hundred and fifty. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a band, and the room was packed, and every single person sang every single word from the first song to the last song. And I didn't know any of the songs, and even I was like, this is really good. Like, I knew they were going to be massive. Like, it just it blew me away. Amazing. Band, yeah, absolutely. All right, brilliant, Rab. Thanks very much for, for joining us this, this afternoon to chat to us. We're going to finish up with the encore now. Okay. Um, and we want to talk about your unusual covers. You know, Las Vegas have done some really cool covers over the years. Uh, yeah. You Are My Sunshine at the end of Flowers and Football Tops and mm-hmm. Silent Night, of course, on the, on the Christmas EP. Um, but Be My Baby was probably one of, a, one of, my, one of our favourites, I think. Um, so what does the future hold in terms of you, this tradition? Have you got any other unexpected covers that you'd like to have a go at covering in the near future? Do you know what? We were, I would love to do a Roy Orbison song. Um, and what else? Uh, do you know what I wanted to do? One of the songs for the Rocky soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love I love the Rocky films and I keep trying to get James to do, do some of that because we stole one of the melodies of it for uh, Dream, Dream, Dreaming in the second record. I can't remember the name of the song. Um, but, but, but we've actually, funny you say that, we've been talking about doing some covers as well. So Yeah, definitely. I'm not going to tell you what it is because we'll probably do it. But. <laughs> Slip all today. <laughs> it's just that Be My Baby one. It's so unexpected for a band like Las Vegas to be... Uh, Pulling off a Ronettes tune like that as well. Do you know what? It was one of the first things we kind of learned as, as a band, funnily enough. Oh, um, yeah. And it, like, obviously, the Daddy's Gone drum beat is the same as the Be My Baby drum beat. It's, that's kind of, mm. I think copyright's okay, so James can rip that off. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was one of the first things. And that's still one of the ones people really still ask us to do a lot on, on the tours. Yeah. Cool. Right, cool. Uh, second question in the encore, Rab. Uh, what's the best gig? you've done so far as Las Vegas when you look back I know there's a few to choose from hmm. there was one gig that resonates with me because it felt like a turning point for the band so it wasn't necessarily that it was an amazing gig I think it was but we did Redden and Leeds in 2008 and it was when we played at the Redden site and hmm. I think it was like we were on at six or half six something like that and when we came off stage the crowd wouldn't stop singing Daddy's Gone. Like we were off for 15 minutes and they were still singing it and the record company and everyone was there and they were like, this doesn't happen. Like like this, that is, that's like a big deal. And we were like, wow, it's really cool. And I, I think that was, that felt like a turning point in terms of like a, a big kind of gig for us. Yeah, absolutely. Festivals such a great chance, aren't they? Just to reach that even bigger audience with yeah, those huge crowds there, yeah. Yeah, we've done some massive festivals like all over the world, like, Korea and Japan and all over America and it's a good way to make money. <laughs> Brilliant. Last up, Rab, well, wonder if you could try and pick out the, uh, the Las Vegas song that you're proudest of. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I really like a song in the third record called All I Want's My Baby. I think that's really good. I'm really proud of that one. Uh, let's do one feature album so that's the third record second record uh, a song called I Feel Wrong and from the first record probably it's my own cheating heart that makes me cry 
Yes, good choice. That would be my that would be my Las Vegas pick as a song. I think, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's one of those songs. After you've had a few beers, oh no, I can imagine it at a Las Vegas gig, a few beers, the whole crowd singing that one. It's uh, so we talked about the powerful uh, guitars and everything behind it. It's uh, a bit of real amp from that one, or it can be on a. Even people sing that back at a gig, it's yeah. so powerful. Whether there's twenty people there or like two thousand, I don't know why that is, but just the power. It's just. It's... It's the best film, best film in the world. Love it. Amazing. Nice one, Rab. Well, hopefully many more experiences like that to come when the new album's out and uh, you, get to, you guys get touring again. Looking forward to exactly. seeing you back on stage. Yeah. Definitely. Nice one. Thanks for coming to the podcast, Rab. No worries. Thanks for having me.